Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, the podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between, with your host, Barry Kirby. Welcome to the next episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. This is quite a, a momentous moment for this podcast because for a while we've been saying that we're going to talk about um, different things but also interviewing people, people who've got some really good expertise in the in the human factors field and I'm very pleased to say that this episode it really sets the bar very, very high. I'm going to interview somebody and I'll get them to introduce themselves in a second but they've got a vast amount of experience in the human factors field, over 30 years worth and they've done everything from starting off in the human factors domain to now running their own consultancy and really influencing some of the really big projects that are going on. So I'm very pleased to introduce and welcome Martin Thody. Thank you Barry, it's very um, pleased to be here and uh, I believe I'm the first person you've interviewed so uh, thank you for that as well. Not a problem. Um, Yes, it's fantastic to have you here because obviously we I want to talk learn a bit more about yourself and how you got into human factors, but also I guess if you're a member of the Chartered Institute, then most people, even if they've never heard of you, you will have influenced their lives so far if they're being good and doing their CPD um, in some way up to this point because you're a member of the Professional Affairs Board and uh, have helped really drive how uh, a lot of the CPD has been developed and changed over the past few years. So really I guess that is one of the main themes of this podcast is how do people get into um, doing effective CPD but also around the side of it around mentoring and how do you become a mentor, Um, what can you do, why is being a mentor good and also as a mentee what are the sort of things we should be looking at. But we'll get onto that in a minute. Um, so if you could just tell us a bit about, about yourself and how did you get into human factors? Why? How did you even know human factors existed and that you wanted to do it? Okay, that's a, that's a really good, in, interesting question to start with. Um, how did I get into human factors ergonomics? Um, by chance, purely by chance. But I think I was destined to do it. Um, and that might sound a bit, a bit of a strange thing to say, um, but one of my first memories um, when I was five or six years old, um, was sort of human factors related. Uh, I was sitting in, I was picked up from school by uh, f- uh, um, one of my friend's parents. And usually I used to walk to school, but I was picked up, the weather was particularly bad, um, it was pouring with rain, and they collected me in a Ford Anglia. Um, and I was sitting in the back, the rain was pouring down, and there were no seat belts in the car. Um, bench seat at the front and I was conscious that I was in a very unsafe environment to the point <laughs> that made me feel uncomfortable. Um, I noticed that the tyres on the outside of the car had got in was very narrow, um, all these things and I was five or six years old and I was thinking can the adults in the front not see this? Why have they put me in this situation? Um, so that was my, one of my very first memories. Um, but how did I get into sort of human factors in later life? Not by the traditional route, I didn't go to university to start with. I left school um, with some, well, to be honest, quite poor poor grades in uh, O levels as they were then and in A levels. Um, and I, but I got a job as an assistant scientific officer working for the Ministry of Defence. Um, 
Well, they're, they're just that's a heck of a jump from just saying that you've had no qualifications to then become into, into the MOD in that way. What, how did you? How, what pushed you into that direction? Was it an advert that you saw, or you just thought I'd go for it, or? Um, that, that was, it was actually an advert that my mother saw. Um, while, I, while I was at school, I had two, two, two interests, really. One was travelling, mm -hmm. and one was the weather uh, and geography. Um, so, I'd, at that, in, in my sort of late teens, I decided I wanted to join the meteorological office. Okay. Um, they were part of the MOD, part of the RAF specifically at the time. And one of my reasons for doing that was because at the time every place where RAF planes landed or took off from in the world had a Met officer. So that was my opportunity uh, to travel. Yeah. Um, so I applied for a job, um, they were based in Bracknell, um, just down the road from where I lived. I applied for a job there and was offered the job pending security clearance, which back then took a long time to, to get. Yeah. Um, my mum saw an advert for the same grade of work, working for the Ministry of Defence, um, all the same terms and conditions, in Farnborough, which was about two or three miles from where I lived, which meant I could cycle, etc. Okay. Um, she said, oh, why don't you go for that? And I said, well, no, I want to go to the Met Office. <laughs> and anyway, well, I went for the, went for the interview, and found out a bit more about it, and it sounded that there were still opportunities to travel, mm -hmm. and potentially it was going to be working with armoured vehicles, which was really quite exciting to quite a 19-year-old. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I ended up taking that, I got offered that, and ended up taking that. And this is the bit that was completely by chance. I happened to be allocated to a group of three ergonomists, that worked in the vehicle ergonomics group. Okay. Um, and they were f absolutely fantastic. And one of them, well, the only reason I'm here doing what I'm doing now is because of those three guys. Um, so I'm going to mention their names if I may. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. David Streets, who was the head of the team, um, Ken Wayman, who was my immediate boss, and David Lawrence. And they were so generous yeah. with their knowledge and sharing it. And you mentioned mentoring at the beginning of the um, beginning of the session here. Um, one of the reasons that I'm very keen on mentoring is because I got such a good um, deal from them in terms of their mentoring of me. Yeah. And, and I do a lot of mentoring now. I'm not doing any, anything special to do with me. I'm just copying the model that they used on me. Right. Um, so all the credit needs to go to them, really, not, not to myself. But, so that's how I got into it in the first place. That's um, fantastic. It's... I also find it interesting talking to um, people, not down the bar one way or another, and looking at people's inspiration about how um, not only you got into it, which um, obviously the, the love of armoured vehicles, uh, I think I very much share with you because uh, I have a very similar approach to myself. Um, but what inspires you to keep going? Um, I mean, as I said at the beginning, yeah, you, you started off at, at that age, but you've, you've been in this game for 30 years now and still doing. Uh, not the same old thing, but the um, still very much in, the, in that same same domain. What what is it that fires you up to get you to come into work every day? Um, that's that's a, that's a really good question, and I, I do ask myself that that same question quite frequently. Sometimes better than others. I think there are a number of aspects to that uh, question, Barry, and I, I think one of them is I 
I am passionate about um, making things work for people. I'm also fascinated in in, in people's stories, what, what their journeys have been, how they've ended up doing what they're doing, what their jobs are. Um, and I like, to, I like to solve problems. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the reasons I still love the business of human factors is because, yes, I do have a lot of experience. I mean, I started in 1985, um, so that's a long time ago now. And I have picked up a lot on the way. And um, I want to share that now and, and give something back, which I know sounds a I know it sounds a little bit twee, um, but there's it, people like us that pass on that knowledge and support the next generation and make sure it carries on. Yeah. Um, so that, that's you know there's a number of aspects there, but um, yeah, that's what that's gets cool. me up in the morning. So if we then um, move to the present day, you're uh, manager director of your own consultancy. Mm -hmm. um, now I've got to be honest. How do you pronounce it? Humanomics. Humanomics. Okay. Because I, I was saying, about, I was going to introduce you as my director of uh, humanomics, humanon, and yes, it's. Um, and so, how long have you been running your own consultancy now? Um, for ten years. So just well, a bit of experience then. Yeah. That, that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Um, and it, I guess it's it's a nature of some of our, of the community that we're in that there are a lot of people who run their own consultancies. You know, I, okay, I do the same. Do you think that the the, the nature of what the human factors community is lends itself to that because I don't know whether you feel this but I don't feel it's a it's a cutthroat world in the human factors world it is a lot more generous it's a lot more um, well it's a small world I guess more than anything else as well but do you do you feel very comfortable in that in the role that you've currently got? I, I, I do and I really enjoy um, being being in the role it made for the main reason I can actually just go and do the work and and offer what I can to the um, the next generation, um, but without having the dare I say the managerial responsibilities <laughs> for individuals, yeah. which I found in the past I've been and I've done that role in the past. Um, I, had a, I was a team lead at Kinetic and I had 18 people in the team, mm -hmm. um, and the, the managerial responsibilities, which you know if you're in that position you need to take seriously, I found that they were taking too much time. Yeah. and effort and my resource away from what I was, you know, I could really offer and um, I felt, you know, I'm an okay manager, but I'm quite a good human factors person. So um, being in the consultancy role means that you can give all, I can give all of my effort and my focus yeah. just doing the human factor stuff. So cool. that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy that. Cool. Excellent. So. To turn now to, I guess, the, the CPD, the training side of things, um, what is, so as I said at the beginning, you you sit on this, um, on the PAB, um, can you tell us a bit around what PAB is and its importance in, in the CIHF? Yeah, um, <coughs> this is actually my second term on the Professional Affairs Board. So is that a loan for punishment? Or? No, it's, <laughs> um, the, the, the first time, I'll be completely honest with you, the first time I, I served on the Pro Professional Affairs Board was in the early 2000s um, where I felt that I should do something towards the, the society as it was then, mm -hmm. the economic society as it was then. Um, and I didn't get too much out of it the first time, okay. and perhaps because I didn't 
didn't have enough experience. Um, but I'm, I've now um, chosen to go back on. Um, I'm in, into the third year of, of this term, and I'm intended to stay on and do another, at least one more term. Um, but the Professional Affairs Board basically look after the professional standing competency membership of the of the, of the institute. Um, I've not been on council, um, which is sort of the, the, the management board of the of the institute, uh, where they set the strategy and the, and the rules, and then the professional affairs will sort of implement them, and, and it's more um, member focused and more capability focused mm -hmm. rather than sort of business management focused, which I guess is what the council council do. So it's fair to say with the professional affairs board, it's they um, do the, the CPD bit. Uh, which we'll talk about in a second, but they also do look at all the other bits, like looking at the um, uh, consultancies, become registered consultancy, and so anything a professional standard that all comes through you. That that's quite a broad remit, isn't it? It, it's, uh, it is quite a broad remit. So we we look at all of the different levels of membership. Um, we set the requirements um, for the different levels of membership. Um, for some of those levels of membership, um, technical member, um, registered member fellow and um, the chartered status associated with the registered member and the fellow, there's all um, assessment criteria that against all of those that the PAB set and we assess um, and then we basically determine um, the, the acceptance criteria for those and, and then we do all the management as well with people when they apply. And linked in with that is um, the CPD, the Continued Professional Development, and I'm actually the CPD lead for the Institute, um, which I took on from Adrian Wheatley last year. Um, and, and although, although I'm the, the CPD lead, and I have a very strong interest in, in, in CPD, um, and we put together the rules, and we put together a very good um, system now um, for recording CPD and assessing CPD is now online so people can do keep up to date and, and put their CPD in as and when they do it um, and, the, and the assessment process that was used last year for the first time was, was based on the on the web based um, submission of CPD and uh, worked extremely well we learned some lessons and we've, we've tweaked things very slightly but the, when the CPD year finishes at end of which is a calendar year um, we'll be using the same assessment process uh, and um, administration process that we did last year with a few tweaks and we're hoping to shorten the time from end of the year to um, completing this full assessment process and then unlocking um, the CPD um, early next year. So yeah, we set all the rules for that um, and we, we basically provide the governance for the membership side of the, of the Institute. So you basically keep us straight? Well, I'll try, try, try to, try to. Um, although, in, in, in terms of keeping you straight, um, the, there's, a, there's a good mix on the Professional Affairs Board at the moment um, from uh, the academia and from industry and practitioners, and that's changed over the years. Uh, when I first joined the Institute, and that was a long, long time ago, um, the um, the Council and the Professional Affairs Board were very much um, academic-led, 
but that's changed over the years and been much more balanced, if not perhaps gone the other way slightly now, to be much more pragmatic, much more applied base with, with a, you know, still good support from academia, but that's not where the focus is anymore. Yeah. Um, so actually, in terms of the CPD, actually, one of the things that I contributed to the, the rules, if you like, or the, the, the categories, um, was, was looking to expand the, the categories which um, initially were very academic focused mm -hmm. and for people in pra practice quite difficult sometimes to work out what CPD um, in, in the industri industrial environment might look like and how it mapped onto the, the criteria that it was supposed to be meeting. Yeah. So you know, we've expanded the, the categories. Um, so that, that's really quite important isn't it because I guess um, when you look at CBD, it's something that everybody's got to be able to apply, mm -hmm. and it's got to be. It's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because we want everybody to do very detailed CBD, um, but by the same token, you're not going to go in and do it because it can be quite daunting from a practitioner perspective. Um, which is why I think the way that the CBD has changed, particularly over the past couple of years, has been I think really valuable because it makes it much more user-friendly, which I guess is a good thing coming from an ergonomics-based organisation. Um, so if you could just um, tell us, the, from your perspective from, with CPD, we sit there, we, we input our CPD in, into the system. What do you do with it? Um, well, at the end of the year, um, we, we lock down the system so that um, you, you know, on the 31st of December, that's the deadline for the year, Big accent to everybody, you've got to do it by the end of the year. Indeed. Um, well, hopefully, most people have been doing it throughout the year. Of course um, we have, yes, um, absolutely. I know that doesn't always happen. Uh, but yes, and then we, we, we select 20% of CPD submissions for assessment. Um, there are a large number of volunteers from across the institute that um, are assessors, and... Um, that 20% of selected CPD will be distributed to the assessors. Um, each CPD that's, ex that's chosen to be reviewed or assessed will be reviewed independently by two assessors. Um, and there's a criteria against which they assess. Um, they then independently provide their accept or reject or need more information response. That was then collected, um, and then you know, individuals are notified of the outcome. Um, cool. So it's a fairly straightforward process, but a lot of admin behind the scenes to make sure the right things end up yeah. in the right, the, the right place, and get the right responses back in good time, etc. Because okay, if you're doing twenty percent of the membership of the of, of the people who input, that's an awful lot of volunteer work going on in the background um, because it is majority run by uh, volunteers uh, such as yourself so there's a lot of goodwill involved by a lot of people uh, to make that play. If I'm just starting out in my career, um, I'm not chartered or anything like that yet and maybe I, I'm not going to be for a, for a couple of years yet because I just haven't built up that experience, what advice would you give to somebody in, the, in them shoes because what I see personally is a lot of people get to a certain point where they think, right, I'm going to get on with my career now and I'm going to do that sort of thing. What do I need to do? Is there not something we could be doing almost right from the get-go to make that work better? 
And I, I think that, that, that that's a really good question, Bowie, and I think that that is perhaps a, dare I say, a gap um, that the Institute need to work on um, a bit harder to provide the support to particularly young graduates that, that do have that journey to go on um, before you know, they can become chartered. Um, you, you mentioned earlier about um, the, the discipline being very generous and was it a good place to be a consultant? Well, it is a very good place to be a consultant once you've got the experience and you can effectively stand on your own two feet. But there are not so many opportunities now compared with when I started out to work in large teams of human factors people as a young graduate to get the benefit of other people's experience, to get that nurturing, to get that mentoring, to get that coaching, to really bring people along. A lot of people end up in a, you know, a one or two, um, or so, let's say a small consultancy where they're immediately out, customer facing, um, big writing, turning work around in fairly short order. Again, lots of experience of actually doing the work, but perhaps they're not getting as much support and coaching and technical development from experienced human factors people that, that perhaps they should. So I think there's a bit of a gap, a bit of a gap there. So that's something we, as, a, as an institute, I guess, need to try and find an innovative way of addressing because it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it's, and I guess that can also be coupled with, there's not, I guess there is more so now, but there's a lot of people in human factors, you, you sort of said it yourself, um, I didn't come in through uh, the human factors degree route or, or anything like that. There's a lot of people who come in almost by the side door, so they find themselves in the human factors world. Um, is there, do, do we think there's something there as well to be able to try and make that route easier because I think there's a lot of people coming in, coming in and going out of human factors trying to relate themselves to different disciplines. Um, I don't know if we need to make that that transition, if you like, from you know where, where human factors is a second career. Uh, I don't think we need to necessarily make that um, transition easier. Um, there, there, as you say, there already is a, a good movement across from people choosing human factors as a, as a second career. Um, for those people, that, uh, by the definition that they've been, it's a second career. They're generally more mature, they've had more life experience, yeah. they know that they want to do that, um, so they probably um, have a bit more, more about them. It, my concern is about those young graduates that have chosen human factors yeah. that, that want to develop and they want to move on, um, but if they're not getting that support, are they the ones that are choosing to leave and, and yes. go elsewhere? Yeah. Um, because it's one of the drawbacks of being a very small discipline. And it is a very small discipline. You know, most of us know each other, yes. um, but that, that in itself can be quite limiting. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you go, if you're an engineer or um, you know, in the legal profession or in the medical profession, it's massive. Yeah. So wherever you go, you're probably going to be working in a team, which is quite ironic, really, considering when our scope of human factors is, we can literally get involved in any sort of project that you put out there because they've all got that human interaction, yet we are such a, a small discipline. Um, how do you think that, that works then with, I mean obviously there are no, or none that I'm aware of, undergraduate degrees anymore in ergonomics human factors, 
you generally go and do it as a master's. There's almost, um, and I was on this conversation the other day, that there is no um, driver from, almost from a primary secondary school perspective. You know, you, you have people you want to be pilots or you want to be spacemen or you want to be mathematicians or you're physicists or that type of thing. You never hear the, um, I want to be an ergonomist. Um, so is there, is there an opportunity for us to then try and influence people? Or do you think actually where we're at the moment is fine because it, it is fulfilling you know, what it needs to do, but, it, but we're not growing? Uh, there has been a, quite a lot of work done uh, by the Institute in the past um, looking to develop ergonomics in schools. There was an initiative that was led by Mike Tainch um, a few years ago. Um, so it, it, is, it is starting to creep in, and I'll use the word creep. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it is now included in um, sort of industrial design courses at school level. Industrial design might be the wrong, the wrong term, but um, um, sort of design and technology yeah. type courses it is now included in the syllabus um, for that. Um, there, there was a move, again, must have been 10 years ago, to try and get the scouts, the scout movement, to have an ergonomics badge, um, oh, that's fascinating. Which, that's right, yeah. which, which I think is, is something that we should um, look at again. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that you know, with, with, the, with the, one of the things that the new um, CEO of the uh, of the institute, uh, Norseman uh, Rashid, is looking looking to do, is to increase the media profile of, of the discipline because we're not very good at that um, at the moment. Um, you, know, you get news items, you get a, you know, an air crash or some disaster. Invariably, there's a human factors element to that. Yeah. When, when, when do we ever see an ergonomist on the BBC News as a, as a consultant expert talking about that on the news? That's a really good point. We yeah. should be. Yeah. So th these youngsters in school, they probably never heard of the discipline because it's just not out there. Yes. You know, the only time they get to see it is when they buy a toothbrush and it says designed by an ergonomist. Well, it's never been designed by an ergonomist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very true. Um, um, so we talk, So that's sort of CPD and it's all in a nutshell. But the other part of what you do, and you, you, you alluded to it earlier, is by, is by mentoring people. Um, what do you... What what makes uh, what makes a good mentor? Because actually, the other thing I should mention is you don't only just mentor people; you actually train other people to be mentors. So, what are you looking for in terms of a, of a good mentor? Um, I think first and foremost, the the to be a to be a good mentor, you need to want to do it, um, and I think that's really really important. And sometimes it gets overlooked. Um, and, and 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 I think you, you need to want to do it for two reasons: one, for yourself. But I actually think more importantly, for anybody that you're potentially going to mentor, the mentee, um, for want of a better description, deserves a good mentor. Um, you need to dedicate time to it. You need to. Um, you don't necessarily need to be um, a highly expert ergonomist, human factors engineer. You, but what you do need is you need to give time. You need to listen. Um, you need to understand the process of application. Um, that's that's very important. Um, but I, I think the, ma the main thing is that you really need to want to do it. Um, you, you need to have some passion for the discipline and for, for developing the next next generation. Yeah. Um, because a, a, a 
applying for registered membership and chartership status is is not a trivial activity. It involves a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication, and it can be seen quite a daunting activity to take on when you're right at the beginning. Um, so you need to do a bit of hand-holding, for want of a better description, um, and that takes some patience. Um, sometimes it can be very frustrating. Yes. Um, but it's about listening to what they what what individuals need each each person needs different things from a, a mentor yeah there's, there's a sort of a core theme um of what, what you do as a mentor but again it, it's, it's understanding the which, which is fundamental to being a good human facts engineer is understanding the, the people and you're just bringing that down to an individual basis so what do you so i guess in a nutshell um a mentor is on full life, though actually it could, it could be an, an ongoing relationship and um, and that would be a good thing, but fundamentally I think you're alluding to it, it's about getting you up to either membership or sort of chartered status and getting you almost on that, on that grown up track as it were. Yeah. Um, so what do you think the job, if you were to define this as a, as a job spec, what, 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 is, what is being a mentor all about? Yeah. Um, what, yeah, what are the fundamental essentials they have to do? Well as I said they have to understand the the process, the applications process, and we're talking specifically about application for um, registered membership, yeah. although I, I do also mentor fellows, um, or people applying for fellow, fellowship status. It's not a formal role, there's no requirement on the institute to be mentored through that process. Um, I also mentor potential mentors, um, so there's different aspects to, 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 the, to the role of mentor within, within the institute, but if we talk specifically about the the application to registered member. Um, as I said, you need to understand the process. You need to help um, them draw up a plan because as I said, it's quite a big task, it's quite a daunting task, or can be seen as a daunting task. Break it down into small chunks that are manageable. Have frequent meetings, ideally face to face. Um, although I have mentored people remotely. A bit more challenging, but again, with technology nowadays, things like Skype, FaceTime, etc. So, when you, sorry, when you, when you say it frequently, how frequently um, do you think? Again, that depends very much on the individual. Mm -hmm. Some need more than others, um, but you have an initial kickoff meeting, and then if you're, if you're located on the same in the same place, we're working together, then that's obviously much easier perhaps once a month, once every two months. Okay. It, it depends on their progress. It's very yeah. much led by the individual applicant. Um, although sometimes they need a little bit of prodding yeah. from, from the mentor. And again, it's, that, that's an important thing to get that balance right. Um, so the way that I usually, the way that I usually do it, individual you know, mentors will work in their own way as well. But the way that I do it is um, have an initial meeting talk them through the process in detail, break it down into small chunks, um, dispel any myths that might be there, and there are a number of myths about um, how difficult it is to achieve, um, you know, go through the go through the process and how much, you, you know, simple things like, how long should a logbook activity be? Yeah. You know, 10 pages, one page? Um, many people don't know that. The guidance is there, um, very good guidance is available on the Institute website, but again, to actually have somebody sit face to face and talk you through it, it brings it to life. It's very cold just downloading some information off the internet and, and reading, reading it. 
Um, so you could you talk through that? I've got some examples. Let's take examples of what a good look what a good looks like in terms of a logbook. Um, in terms of the number of activities, that's another really important thing to get across to mentees. I mean, it needs to be between ten and twenty. I always say aim for twelve because it's same with CPD. It's about um, quality, not quantity. I know it's a bit of an old adage, but yeah. Uh, it's very true. Um, I, I advise people not to go for the bare minimum of 10, although I have had some successful mentees that have put in 10, um, but I was aimed for about 12. Um, and, and then I basically talk to them and, and ask them if they've got how many ideas they have for different activities right off the bat. And they generally come up with one or two, maybe okay. three if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, when we start there, then you can ask a, bit, a few more questions. And one one thing that I've always that I've found with most mentees, not all, but in the vast majority, and I think we're all guilty of it, we underestimate in ourselves what we've done and what sort of value. So again, part of the role of the mentor is to draw out draw out those things and identify just through having a discussion. Oh, you did that then. Oh, well, you definitely need to write that down. And they wouldn't have written it down, but they verbalise it and you know put that in your story. And I, mean, I use that word all the time when I'm talking to mentees. Um, it's about telling a good story. Okay. Um, yeah. It's about telling a you know, story of your journey yeah. from you know through your your development as a professional ergonomist, where where you started different activities you've done on that route to where you are now you know if, if they're putting their logbook together to apply then probably at a position where they're ready to be a chartered ergonomist and human medicine yeah. um, and, it, and it's getting that story down so we're looking for um, good progression um, and that's both technical capability um, and also responsibility so it's a professional and a technical mm -hmm. development, yeah. um, and and that's the story that should should be told in the in the logbook. And it sounds like a quite simple thing, and it sounds quite obvious. But when people turn up at your desk and say, "I think I should apply for registered membership, but I haven't got a clue what to do. Can you help me?" It's those little simple things that they haven't even managed to think about. You drop those on the table and then they can go away with a plan. Oh yeah, it's not as quite as difficult. I've still got to do a lot of hard work, but it's not quite as difficult as it's I thought. achievable. So I guess from that as well is, is the starting the logbook or even the semblance of a logbook as soon as you possibly can. Yes. It's got to make your life an awful lot easier. I guess it's a lot harder to come to it later on and say, oh, I need to put together a logbook and think back. Um, how do you find people's... I guess, attitude to that, because you sort of touched on it, that the people don't necessarily sell themselves. One of the things I found quite a lot is that we use we quite a lot. We did this, we did that. And we there can be a, a reluctance to be quite selfish and um, shout about your own achievements. Do you think that holds people back? I, I think that probably holds holds all people back. I don't think that's... Um, I, don't, I don't think that's just limited to human factors specialists. I think that's just a... A human, a human thing that we we all suffer from. I mean, there are one or two people that don't exhibit <laughs> those behaviours, yes. um, but they probably stand out in their in their own right for because they have those, don't have yeah. those behaviours. You know, they're the ones that you know CEOs and 
um, you know, senior officers in the military and all that sort of thing. They have a different outlook, or you know, very successful sportsmen and women. Yeah. Um, again, they probably have that self-belief and willingness to share it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, but I think again that that's something that um, this this preparing the logbook right from the beginning and recognizing in oneself what they did as an individual. I think that, like, again, that is helped if they're in an environment with, you know, in a bigger team, in an environment where they're surrounded by more experienced human factors professionals who can um, provide that advice and guidance and say, well, that would be actually quite a good logbook entry, um, you know, that project that we've just done together, that would be a really good first um, logbook entry. You know, they write that down now, yeah, yeah, otherwise yeah. you'll forget it in three years' time. Um, and then I think that's, again, coming back to something we spoke about earlier, that's where I think some young graduates, where they are not fortunate enough to end up in a larger or supportive team, that's where they don't get that opportunity to really grow and really understand it themselves, that they are developing and that they are making some really good progress. Cool. Okay. So, flip that on its head. What makes a good mentee? So what, what characteristics are you looking for? What makes your life easy as a mentor? Oh, now that is a really good question. Um, I actually don't enjoy easy mentees. Okay. I, I, I really enjoy a mentee that comes to me um, that really wants to do it, mm -hmm. but needs, needs some help, needs some coaching, and they welcome that coaching because that in itself is part of their development. Yeah. Um, if somebody pitches up and they've already completed their full logbook um, and it doesn't need very much work and they've already filled in all the forms, they just need a, a mentor to write a mentor's report to help bolster their application. Yeah, yeah. That's that's not really mentoring. Uh, so that's almost rubber stamping, isn't it? To, it's rubber, to it's rubber stamping, and, and generally they don't need a mentor because they, they've, already, they've already done it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the mentoring is, is, is more than just helping somebody complete the forms. You should be engaged and involved with the mentee through the development. I mean, there, there's a, a mentored route um, which requires a certain number of days being mentored. Um, and that's not just a certain number of days of helping somebody fill in the paperwork. Quite. That's actually time spent with them. Um, so, <coughs> Yeah, the, the kind of <coughs> excuse me, the, the sort of ideal mentee is somebody that's enthusiastic, um, wants to be mentored, is looking to to really push on and really develop and, and put in a very good application, and then you can work together um, to help them produce something that, that they feel really good about when they submit it, um, and that's so yeah, that's what makes it good. So when you when you mentee. talk about somebody that you want to use a challenge, you're obviously not wanting challenging behaviours no, or anything no. like that. So you're going to be keen, but maybe um, you know they've got to develop into um, in, into what it is they want to be. Yeah. Chrysalis and butterfly type of thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, it's, um, yeah, so an idea of mentee is somebody that comes to me early. Yeah. Um, and and they, they they want to share that share that journey. Oh, that's fantastic. So. Looking back in, into the CPD bit, um, you're going to be seeing an awful lot of CPD, we hope, um, at, at the back end of this year, early next year. 
What makes a good CPD record? Um, again, good CPD record is about quality, not quantity. And again, that's something that on the PAB we we changed um, the, what what we were looking for in terms of CPD over the last few years. Uh, it used to be um, sort of time based. You used to have to have done a certain number of hours of CPD. Um, well, we've removed that. Because that's still quite common in some in institutes yeah. as well, particularly in engineering ones, isn't it? It's 30 hours or something, which in the grand scheme of things is meaningless, I guess. Yeah. And, and, then, and, and then things that were identified as good CPD were things like doing a course, attending a conference, um, reading a, a journal. And again, we've expanded that because I'm, I'm sure we've all experienced going to a conference for three days Okay, that looks great on your CPD record because you've got three days worth of CPD, but you come away from the conference and you've probably learnt nothing. Yeah. Um, or it's a very disappointing conference. Um, so there's been no real development opportunity. On, on, the, on the counter to that, you could have a five minute conversation with um, a specialist, you know, with, with an experienced human facts engineer. And you get that light bulb moment, and you you'll learn something that serves you for the rest of your career. It's only taken five minutes, yeah. and that is far more valuable than the three days you spend at a conference. So we've we've tried to, um, I mean, or we have changed it so that the, that five minute conversation is now seen as valuable CPD, and there's an opportunity to record it. Yeah. Um, I think there's that if the, the category is um, inspired by another or something like that. Um, and that's really valuable CPD. So the, the minimum requirement is just for, f for five CPD entries and then three things in your plan for the following year. Um, and the most important part of the CPD is not necessarily what you did, but what you got from it. So it's sort of the self-reflection piece. What difference did it make to me? Um, and how am I going to apply that in the future? Um, am I going to share it with other people in the future? Um, and that is another aspect of CPD which is now included, which wasn't before. CPD before was very, um, dare I say, selfish in terms of CPD is about me and it's what I've taken in and it's what I've learned over the year. Now CPD is equally valued if you give to another, if you help someone else, share some knowledge with others because we're then developing the collective CPD of the discipline. Right, yes. Yeah. So, which is equally as valuable, if not more so, do I say, um, than that individual development. The individual learns from the collective. You develop the collective, then the individuals all come up with it. That's a really, um, uh, I guess, yeah, really good broad way of looking at it. And uh, I guess one of the beauties about being in, I guess, a small discipline is we can easily see what the entirety of the uh, discipline looks like. It's not like, you know, with an engineering hat on, it's it's almost you, you lose yourself in the in the, in the wave of it. Um, so to have that really altruistic view is, is really quite a heartening thing. Um, so you mentioned about you should have three things in your forward plan. What three things are in, going to be in your forward plan this year? Um, well, the, the three things are going to be in my forward plan for the coming I just, year. For the audience, Martin didn't realise this question was coming. Um, I've already decided on, on what they were going to be anyway, so, um, but yeah, I wasn't expecting it. Um, is, I, I, one of the things that I do is I run an introduction to human factors 
engineering course, which I've delivered actually all over the world um, in the past, um, mainly in Southeast Asia. There's big demand for our skills and knowledge in that part oh, that's of the world. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but that course is not accredited by the Institute. Um, that's another thing that the Professional Affairs Board do is accredit training courses. Right. Okay. Um, so I, I want to. Well, I want to update that course because it's a bit dated now. Uh, it's, it seems to receive good reviews, but it, it is outdated. It need, needs a bit of a, a revamp. Um, so I've got one. One is to is to update the course, um, and then the second is to get that accredited. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing, not really sure yet what the third thing is going to be. We've yeah. still got a couple of months to go. Yeah, so that's okay. Well. Um, so, like I said, a couple of months till the end of the year. If you could buy a Christmas present that has the ergonomic human factors theme, what's it going to be? I think it would have to be um, Norman's book, um, The Design of Everyday Things. Oh, good shout. Okay. It's, uh, I think that's going to be on quite a few people's list this year because it does sound like it's quite a, quite a, quite a decent read. So, thank you very much for for spending um, the, uh, quite a significant amount of your very busy schedule with us. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, um, to either hear about your experience as CPD or as a mentor, um, or to get some of your consultancy skills in their organisation, how would they get in touch with you? Um, through my LinkedIn page, um, all my contact details are on there. Um, or my email address is martin at humanomics.com. And I'll make sure that they are written in the, uh, in the show. Um, show details as well. But it just remains for me to say thank you very much, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure to interview you. And whilst I've known you for a couple of years now, I, I've learned something new about you this evening as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Barry. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.